Thank you to our praise team. It is great to see everybody today. So glad that you're here. So glad that you joined us for worship this morning. Um, we have been in a series traveling through, well, we just started it last week, uh, the Paul's letter to the Colossians, to the Christians in Colossae. Just as a kind of way to reintroduce some of that, I wanted to just throw a map up here so we can reorient ourselves to some of the background that we established last week. Uh, we can, you can see on the map there that uh, Colossae is in Asia Minor. Uh, it sits about 120 miles miles east of Ephesus, which would have been a major trade route, a port city. Um, and so that sets Colossae on the route through uh, Asia Minor, part of that trade route. And so it would have been a very important city. Uh, one of the pictures we showed you last week was of the tell of Colossae. I don't think we have that for you today. But anyhow, it's just a big mound. Uh, unlike many of the other archaeological sites that you'll find in that part of the world, in places like Corinth, and places like Greece, Greece, where you can walk around and see all of the old architecture, all the, the, the whole city of Colossae is buried underground. Um, and the archaeologists will dig that up and they'll learn lots of stuff from that. But anyhow, that's kind of where Colossae is. And so Paul is writing to Colossae from prison when he's back in Rome. Um, interestingly, Paul spent two and a half years in Ephesus, um, but he never traveled out to where Colossae is. And we talked about that last week about how he had never visited uh, the Colossian Christians. Um, if, if they had seen him on the street, they would never have recognized Paul. And just the same if he had seen them, he never would have recognized them. But we saw last week how Paul had been praying for some years for the Christians in Colossae. And this had formed a special, deep, and meaningful bond between them. And we call that intercessory prayer, how Paul had been bringing them and their needs before the Lord and been praying and asking God and his resources to come to bear on behalf of the Colossian Christians. And so we experienced that last week. We had you write down little um, uh, prayer requests on cards as you came forward for communion. You place those in baskets and then pick those up on your way back out of the church. And so we, this past week, as a church family, have been praying for one another, and we've experienced some of what Paul and the uh, Colossian Christians experienced as they interceded on behalf of one another. I want to remind you of one scripture I pointed out last week, and that was James chapter 5, verse 16. It reads the second half of the verse in the King James Bible. It says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so I want to thank you this past week for praying for one another, for all those prayers that you lifted up. Um, I hope it was a blessing into your lives. Um, as we come today to chapter 1 and verse 15, where Paul begins uh, what many, many Bible scholars believe to be the most concise response or the most concise statement in all of Scripture about the question of who is Jesus. Paul gives a very straightforward answer. So let's turn over there to our text for today, Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 15. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We'll read verses 15 through 19. <clears throat> Again, we stand week in and week out to be reminded that this is where truth comes from. Amen. Uh, that we don't have to wonder, you know, we hear lots of opinions during the week, but when those opinions fall out of line with what God's Word says, we default back to God's Word. And so we stand week in and week out just to be reminded, right, that this is where truth comes from, that this is the final word in all matters, that this is the, the authoritative truth source for us. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. Paul answering the question, who is Jesus? Here we go, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You may be seated. Um, right off the bat, you may be thinking to yourself, that sounds like a lot of theological jargon, and Paul kind of lost me, uh, but I, if, we'll dig into the particulars there, but if you go beyond the particulars and you just ask yourself, what is the main point that Paul is trying to communicate through these verses? I think we would all agree that Paul is trying to establish the theme in those verses is who is Jesus, and he says that Jesus is God. That's who Jesus is. And so he gives a lot of different particulars about that, but that's his driving point in those verses. So let's dive in. Let's look at verse 15. It says, talking about Jesus, Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you see there how he's saying that Jesus is God that we can look upon? Uh, that's what he's saying there, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Still in verse 15, he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The Greek word that's translated there, firstborn, is the word prototoxos, and it means preeminent, or it means superior. It means somebody of surpassing greatness. That's what the word is, um, identifies. It can also mean first in birth order, the firstborn. Now, if you grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, you may be inclined to think that that right there is actually talking about Jesus as the first created, that Jesus is a created being, which if Jesus is a created being, that means that Jesus is not God, because God is infinite. God is eternal. God has no beginning, and God has no end. And it is this point that the Jehovah's Witnesses are trying to push through into the text there, that Jesus is a created being. But again, that's not the word that Paul uses. Paul uses the Greek word prototoxos, which means means firstborn. It means superior or preeminent. If Paul had wanted to say first created, Paul, there's a Greek word for that. It's the word protokitso, and, but Paul didn't use that word because Jesus was not a created being. Jesus has no beginning. He is eternal God. This is the point that Paul's trying to make here. He is eternal God along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not created in the womb of Mary. He had preexisted the womb of Mary. He is the firstborn of creation, a term in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew um, understanding of that, which points to his superiority, his preferability, his surpassing greatness. Now, if you're, if you're curious that the term firstborn might still kind of leave the door open to this idea that Jesus is a created being, um, it is possible that that could be what Paul meant. But again, if, we have, if we're rooted in Hebrew tradition, if we understand how this word is used all through the New Testament and the Hebrew tradition coming into when Paul uses this word, who himself was very schooled in Hebrew understanding of things, we would not make that mistake. For example, if we go back to the Old Testament, we saw this in the life of Joseph as we were looking at Joseph. Joseph had two sons, and one of those sons was considered to be the firstborn, even though he was not the first in birth order. Joseph's father, Jacob, identified identified Ephraim, the second-born son of Joseph, as the firstborn, as the preeminent or the superior of the two children. For example, in the Old Testament, we learn about David, King David, who was talked about in the Scriptures as the firstborn, even though David was the last among the many sons of Jesse. So those are just a few of many instances in the Old Testament in the Hebrew understanding of things where the term is used to refer to someone's preeminence or their superiority, even when they were not the first in line in terms of birth order. Verse 16, for him, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both the things visible and invisible, whether it was thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is a tremendous statement that Paul just makes here. Paul says of Jesus, he ascribes to Jesus the act of creation. He says that Jesus can ex nihilo, which is the Latin term meaning that he can create from nothing. He's, refer he's giving Jesus the same quality that we see in the Old 
Testament of God the Father that he can bara, which means that he can create from nothing. He's ascribing that same attribute or that same character to the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is not only the visible image of God. He's not only the preeminent uh, 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 being in all of creation, but, he's, but he can also bara. That is, he's also creator. Now, Paul builds upon that in verse 17. Look at verse 17. He adds that because Jesus is creator, he is before all things. That is, he, before there was us, before there was a creation, there was Jesus. Jesus has always been. Again, Paul is pointing out here again to, to the point, or is pointing out the eternality of Jesus, that he possesses the same attribute of God, that God is eternal. God has no beginning. God has no end. God is infinite. And Jesus, as God, is infinite as well. He says he is before all things. So before there was anything that we know, before there was this material universe in which we live, there was the Lord Jesus. Still in verse 17, he says, in him all things hold together. That is, Jesus is the one who holds the protons and the neutrons and the quarks of the universe together. He is the glue that holds all of the universe together. Again, pointing to Jesus's creation or his creator quality. Verse 18, not only is Jesus all those things, but he's also, verse 18, the head of the body of the church. That is, that Jesus is the focus of our worship. Friends, we don't worship human beings. We worship God. And here Paul is making the point that Jesus is the subject of our worship. Why? Because Jesus is God. Middle of verse 18, he says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You say, hold on just a second there, Gordo, if you remember that from last week. Somebody said on the way out the door last week, they said, hey, Gordo, good to see you. Uh, maybe y'all weren't here for that joke, but um, any case, um, so he's saying, you say, I thought you just got done saying that Jesus has no beginning, that he has no end, and here Paul's saying that he's the beginning, so is there some kind of contradiction going on here in Scripture? I mean, what, what's going on? Uh, well, again, if we read the context of what Paul's talking about and what Jesus is the beginning of, then we recognize that there's no contradiction here. Is he the beginning of creation? No, we've already established that. Before there was creation, there was the Lord Jesus. Is he the beginning of humanity? Is he the first created being? Again, he uses the word prototoxos, not the word protokitso. That's not what Paul is referring to here, that Jesus is the first of all created human beings. That's not what he's referring to here. Is he a beginning of time? Again, he's already said that Jesus was beginning. Before there was us, there was Jesus. He said he's not the beginning of time. Paul says that Jesus is the beginning. So what is he the beginning of? He says he's the beginning of the firstborn of the dead. That is of the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is the first to be given a resurrected body, the first of millions of billions of people who would resurrect when Jesus returns uh, to take his kingdom. Um, and, Jesus, and Jesus was the first of those to be resurrected from the dead. That's what he's the beginning of. Last statement, verse 19, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then Paul repeats this again over in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, or as in the NIV writes it, in bodily form. Um, so Jesus is God with flesh on. We call that the incarnation. That's who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. All right, let's sum up. Who is Jesus? Paul says, I got a slide for you here. Who is Jesus? Pulls it all together. Paul says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He's God that we can look upon. 
Um, we can see him in the flesh. Number two, who is Jesus? He is the firstborn. He is superior. He is the preeminent one in all of creation. Number three, who is Jesus? He is the creator of heaven and earth. He's the glue that holds all of it together. Number four, who is Jesus? He is eternal God, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He has no beginning. And finally, number five, who is Jesus? He is the first to experience the resurrection of the dead. He is our resurrection and our hope. All right, so I know that that was a lot, right? Was it a lot? I think it was a lot. It was a lot for me as I was even working through it this past week. And so Paul makes this, again, very precise or concise statement of who Jesus is. And so we've walked through that. And he goes on in the following, in the verses that follow, which we won't get to today, to kind of talk about what Jesus accomplished um, and more identifying who Jesus is. And we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Um, but for today, I just want to help let some of that ruminate in our minds because it was a lot to take in um, by asking a follow-up question. And here's my follow-up question. Paul says some really nice things about Jesus here, correct? He says some things that are um, very lofty about the Lord Jesus. But the question that I have and that some other, uh, maybe perhaps skeptics have even asked was, but did Jesus ever claim this about himself? I mean, Paul seems to have this opinion of him. The gospel writers seem to have this opinion of him. Um, other writers of the New Testament have this opinion of Jesus. The church historically has celebrated Jesus in this way. But did Jesus himself, from his own lips, did he ever claim these things? Did he ever claim to be God? Flip over in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, or you can just follow along with us on the, on the screen. Mark chapter 2 is near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, there's a guy that's presented to Jesus who cannot walk. His friends have carried him in on a litter. They get to the house where Jesus is teaching. They can't get inside the house. It's jam-packed. Um, and so they climb up on the roof. I'm not sure what this looked like or how they did this, but they climbed up on the roof. They knocked a hole in the roof. They lowered their buddy down on this litter uh, at the feet of Jesus. I guess they cleared out a little spot. The guy's laying there on the ground. Jesus turns to the fella who, has, who can't walk, um, who is crippled, and he says to him, he says, Mark chapter 2 and verse 5, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not why the fellow had his friends lower him down through the roof. He's there because he has heard that Jesus can perform miracles, that he can heal the sick, that he can heal the lame. And he's come hoping that the Lord Jesus will heal him. That's why he's there. That's why he's laying on the, on the floor in this house. Um, but Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, there were some Bible professors there. And, and I don't know if you know Bible professors. I know a few Bible professors. But they can, you know, they can get a little particular about some things. And so they got, they got their nose out of joint about this. And so they, their faces start getting all contorted. Um, and Jesus realizing that they're having a problem with what he just said, that your sins are forgiven. Um, it, they, they say to him, why do, or they say to themselves, why does this man speak like that? How can he say that? How can he say that your sins are forgiven? They go on to say, this is blasphemy. Now, if you blaspheme back at the first century and you're a Jewish person, that's when people start picking up rocks and throwing them at you. I mean, so this is a major offense that Jesus apparently has just committed by telling this guy that his sins are forgiven. They say, and here's the, here's the offense, who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, this man just claimed that he can do something that only God can do. And so Jesus, seeing the contortions on their faces and realizing that they have their blood pressure is up, uh, he, say, he, turns to, uh, he turns to them, verse 9, he says, Fellas, which is easier to say to this paralyzed guy, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, rise up and take your bed and walk? In other words, um, you know, I could tell you on your way out of church today that your sins are forgiven. 
I, I could say, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins. But how does anybody know that I actually forgave your sins? How does anybody know that uh, we can't peer inside of your soul and see that your, your, your sins have been washed clean, like what the blood of Jesus does for our souls? I mean, the blood of Jesus is the stain stick of heaven, right? It washes our souls whiter than snow. How do we know that by me saying that, that your sins are forgiven, that that's going to be what happens on the inside of you and your soul? So which is the easier thing for me to say to somebody that their sins are forgiven, something that I can't prove, or to tell this guy who's paralyzed, everybody knows he can't walk. We've been seeing him around town for the last 40 years. His friends just lowered him down through the roof. We know he didn't walk in here. How, how, for me to tell that guy that he can get up and walk, which is the easier thing for me to say? Well, of course, the easier thing for me to say is to tell this guy his sins are forgiven. And so Jesus turns to these Pharisees and he says, which is easier to say to this guy, your sins are forgiven, or to say to them, rise up, take your bed and go home. Um, and so everybody there knows that the easier thing to do is just to say your sins are forgiven because I can't prove that I actually did that. So Jesus says, verse 10, to prove to you and everybody else here that I can, the Son of Man does have the authority on earth to forgive sins, that I can do the thing that only God can do. I'm going to tell this guy to get up and walk. In about three seconds, you're going to see him get up and walk. And so I'm going to do that so that you can know I can do the other thing as well. He says, verse 11, pick up your bed and go home. Verse 12, and the guy rose up and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And everybody said, we never saw anything like this. Not only can he heal the paralyzed man, but apparently... This fellow also has the ability to forgive sins, something only God can do. How about John chapter 10 and verse 30? Jesus said, I and the Father are one, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Apparently he's committed blasphemy again. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works, referring there to the miracles that he had just performed. For which of these miracles? I mean, he had just healed a deaf guy who couldn't hear. He had just caused a guy who was blind to be able to see again. He had just fed all of these people. And he says, for which of these good works, for which of these miracles, for which of these acts of compassion would you throw stones at me? Makes no sense why you would want to do that. And the Jews answered in verse 33, it's not for a good work. I mean, we've seen your miracles. We agree that's a very compassionate. We're, we're glad that you did that. It's not for that that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim or make yourself out to be God. Friends, did the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day who put everybody through a tight sieve and scrutinized them believe that Jesus was claiming to be God in the flesh? You bet they did. Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Verse 38, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, believe the miracles that I perform myself so that you can then know that I have this. I'm of divine origin. I'm not like the rest of everybody else. I'm a unique human being. I came here because God placed me in the womb of Mary. And I was, I was born and I was raised here on the earth. I am God in the flesh. And in this way, you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And I am in the Father. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. Again, I could go on and on and on through the New Testament scriptures where we see a, occasion after occasion, event after event, where Jesus claims to be God in the flesh. Um, but, you know, our stomachs are growling. 
and lunch is going to need to happen at some point here soon. So with that, uh, it's, it's time for us to jump on over to our most important question, the question that we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, you say, Gordon, I appreciate the theology lesson this morning. That is a lot, you know, to chew on and to take in. I appreciate that. But, you know, I agree with all that you taught. I agree with what the Bible's saying. I agree with what the Lord Jesus had to say about himself and who he is. And so, you know, let's say amen and head on out and beat the Baptist to, to lunch today. Um, what difference does any of this make uh, to my life? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. You know, as I was thinking this week, when it comes to this question of who is Jesus, the world is, has no lack of opinions, right? The world has, has lots of ideas of who they think Jesus is. For example, uh, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, in the aftermath of his life here on earth, agreed that Jesus was a great man, that he was a prophet, perhaps. Muhammad, the founder of the Muslim faith, taught that Jesus was one of Allah's many prophets. He actually talked about Jesus in the Quran. According to the Mormons, Jesus was a man who worked his way up into becoming a God just like you and I can do. The Jehovah's Witnesses, we mentioned them earlier, they see that Jesus as the first created being. The Unitarian, the Universalists say that Jesus was a moral teacher who tried to help us get along in a really tough, tough world. And then you have the secular humanists who wouldn't believe in any sort of God, but they would see Jesus as a moral philosopher. They would see him as a great man. You say, Gordon, I mean, isn't that a good thing that all these world religions and all these people see Jesus as a great man, that they have a high and an esteemed opinion of him? Isn't that a good thing? Yeah, that's a good thing. However, one of the things that you'll notice as you go through that list of who all these different world religions and people say who Jesus is, is a universal denial that Jesus is anything more than a mere man. While they all agreed that Jesus existed, that he was a great teacher, they don't see him as anything more than flesh and blood. And you know, if I present Jesus to someone who has a perspective like that, and I say to them, you know, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's, that's who he was. That's who he claimed to be. That's who the, the witness of the scriptures about him. And they want to resist Jesus as God. Well, frankly, that's none of my business. Um, all I can do is I can tell them about who Jesus is, and if they want to just say, you know what, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to reject that tr as truth. I'm going to reject Jesus as truth. Again, that's their business. There's nothing I can do about that. If someone comes along and wants to renounce Jesus as God and renounce him as their Savior, I mean, my heart will be broken about that. But at the end of the day, they're a person. They're an individual. They have a decision that they have to make, and again, that falls into their business. However, as a follower of Jesus Christ— one thing that we cannot allow is for people to redefine who Jesus is. Because, friends, we know from the testimony of Scripture and from the lips of Jesus himself that he was much, much more than just a mere man. In the early church, when the Roman Empire wanted all of its subjects to confess that the emperor was God, tens of thousands of Christians went to their death because they refused to redefine who Jesus is is. And the reason is because they understood something. They understood that they had a responsibility not to let anyone redefine Jesus Christ. They had a responsibility to defend Jesus Christ with their very lives, if need be. And I submit to you that we here in the 21st century still carry that same responsibility. Now, in some parts of the world, to defend Jesus Christ may go well, or may, may well cost us our lives, 
Um, but here in America, probably not. I mean, it, taking a stand for the Lord Jesus in America, it probably won't cost us our lives like it might in some other parts of the world. But it may well cost us our job. And it may cost us some contracts. And it may cost us some popularity. And it may cost us our inheritance or our friends or relationships with our neighbors. Or it might cost us a promotion. But you know, folks, whatever the cost may be, as followers of Jesus Christ, walking in the footsteps of those early Christians, we have a responsibility to fill, to pay that price, whatever the price is. Because redefining Jesus is simply not negotiable. And we've got a world, friends, that wants to redefine Jesus badly. And what his values are. And they want to break him down to a level where they don't have to make any changes to their lifestyle in order to get along with him. And I see Christians, and I see Christian leaders, and it does break my heart to see this. Um, erasing the lines, lowering the bar, compromising on this, erasing the lines where the Bible draws them. And they're doing it in the name of public relations. And they're doing it in some cases in the name of evangelism, trying to reduce the barriers that somebody might have to overcome to get to a relationship with the Lord Jesus. They want to sanitize Jesus so that he's a more secularized, worldly uh, perspective of him. And, but what they'll find, it's something that's more palatable for the world to be able to accept. But what, they're, what they find is, yes, the world might embrace them. But in embracing him, the, the Jesus that we're presenting to people is not the Jesus who the Bible proclaims him to be. Friends, that is not evangelism. That is not compassion. That is lying to people. That's what that is. Friends, if we allow the world to redefine Jesus, to embrace him on its own terms, then we reduce Jesus to nothing more than a humanitarian, a moralizer, a teacher, a philosopher, a nice religious man. Friends, was Jesus all of these things? Yes, he was, but he was so much more. Jesus was God wrapped in human flesh. He was the visible image of the invisible God. He was the firstborn. He was the superior among all of creation. Jesus is creator, the sustainer, the glue that holds all of the world together. Jesus is eternal God. He has no beginning. He has no end. And finally, Jesus is the first to be resurrected from the dead bodily. He is our hope and he is our savior. Folks, if this is who Jesus is, if this is who Jesus is, then that means he demands the, to be the Lord of our behavior in everything we do. And that means that he demands our surrender over our lives and everything that we are. Our world wants to redefine Jesus so that they don't have to deal with him. Friends, we cannot let that happen, whatever the personal cost to us. We need to stand firm in our office. We need to stand firm in our home, in our school, out on the ball field, with our relatives, with our neighbors, anywhere we go, even if there's a big personal cost to pay. Shay Gordon, that's heavy. And I got to say that it's kind of easy for you to stand up there and say that because you work at the church. <laughs> I mean, we would expect you to have those opinions and perspectives. So my question is, and this is just an honest question. I was thinking through that this week. Why? Why would I want to pay that kind of a price, that heavy of a price? Why would, why would I do that? Why should I be willing to pay that kind of a price? 
It's a good question, and the answer is very simple. We should be willing to pay that price because of what Jesus said is going to happen when we get to heaven. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, straight from his own lips. He said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 33, he said, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, I don't want to say with crystal clarity exactly what Jesus meant there because I think it is a little bit up in the air. But I can tell you one thing for sure, that whatever it means to be acknowledged before the Father in heaven, I want that. I want that. All right, let's summarize. Jesus calls on you and me as his followers to take a stand for his truth, that Jesus was God in the flesh, and to never compromise on it, regardless of the personal cost. And that this is the mantle that tens of thousands of Christians have handed to you and me with their very lives. And this is the mantle that we want to carry on to the next generation, again, no matter the price that is required of us. Because while the cost may be negotiable to us, the deity of Christ is not. Let me say one final word this morning, that if you're here today and you have never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, Gordon, I've been listening to you talk this morning, and, and I've always known that Jesus was a great person, and I've read what he's had to say, and, and I'm intrigued by him. But I never thought about Jesus in these terms, that this was God come to earth in the flesh, lived a sinless life, gave his life on the cross for my sins. I just never saw him in that light. And so I want to give you an opportunity this morning, if you've never entered into a real and personal relationship with him, to do so this morning. I'm going to ask, if you would, to bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm going to ask, if you would, just silently where you are, just pray these words after me. No one needs to hear them in this room. Only our Lord in heaven does. So you pray to him. Follow after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I see today who you are for all of your glory, for all of your majesty, that you are the superior one. I love you, Lord, for that. I want to be in a relationship with you. I recognize that I have a sin problem that I cannot fix. And so I ask you, Jesus, through the blood that you shed on the cross for my sins, to enter into my life, to forgive me of my sins, to become my Lord and my Savior. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that if we prayed that prayer, if we invited you into our life, Lord, that our eternal destiny has turned on a dime. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to come together as the body of Christ to hear your words of truth, spoken into our ears, to be refreshed in our eyes who it is that we worship. Lord, we're reminded at this table of your broken body and of your shed blood, which made that relationship that each of us has with you possible. Lord, in these quiet moments this morning, may we worship you. May we share with you our words of gratitude. Lord, we love you. You are worthy. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.